This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback. And I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queros, Cami here. This week, we got a chat with Congressman Mark Takano. Mark is, um, well, first of all, our first elected official on the show. I was pretty excited about that. And he is currently serving in Congress. He's, uh represents Riverside County here in uh, California. He is also openly gay and Japanese-American, which I say because he's the first ever um, openly gay person of Asian descent in, in Congress. I think it is, um, this, this conversation is super interesting. We talk about his background, his family. Um, so his grandparents were interned in um, internment camps in California during World War II. And Mark has a pretty interesting story coming up at the end of the episode about um, when he ran for Congress back in the 90s. And anyway, just... I hope you listen to the whole episode. Really interesting. And hey, if you have, if there is a queer elected official that you know of, tell them to come on our show. Because I think this is a really uh, cool next place for us to go. I'm looking at you, Kansas. All right. Have a great day. Enjoy the show. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still On this show, I always have folks, I always have guests introduce themselves. Would you introduce yourself? So my name is Mark Takano. I am a United States representative or people, more commonly people think of a United States representative as a congressman or a congressperson. Um, and I represent the 41st District of California, which is not far from the studio uh, in actual distance, but drive time on... You know, uh, congested freeways, it can vary anywhere from like an hour and 15 minutes to like two or three hours. Uh, I My my district is uh, basically Riverside County, River, West Riverside County, the city of Riverside, Moreno Valley, uh, Paris, spelled P-E-R-R-I-S, not P-A-R-I-S. It's, so it's Paris uh, and Harupa Valley. And Paris is one of the, is one of the mm, it might be the, I can't remember which is smaller, Paris or Harupa Valley, but Paris is where they go parachuting. Um, they have a little small airport over there where, they, where people parachute. Um, there's a parachuting school and all that. So um, uh, I grew up in Riverside. Um, and for folks that are listening that don't know, like Riverside to LA, which direction is that? That's east of here. It's uh, if you think of that Los Angeles, Riverside, and um, and Palm Springs are all sort of on the same, you know, latitude. Right. Um, if you're driving toward Palm Springs, uh, depending on which highway you're taking, you drive through Riverside, and uh, you know, Riverside used to be uh, mainly rural and agricultural. Now it's, I would say, urbanizing. Um, it's probably gone beyond suburban. It's kind of more of an urban area. Uh, it's about a three hundred and fifty thousand, you know, person city. And um, in many states in the Midwest, that's a 
that's a pretty big city. Absolutely. So, <laughs> don't you think? Sure. So, um, so, you know, I grew up, I grew up there, was born and raised there, and um, now represent uh, that area in, in, in Congress. And, and you um, said when you grew up that it was um, agricultural. What's the, what is like the main industry there now? Well, the main industry is, um, there's not really a dominant industry. You know, we have a little bit of aerospace. We have a lot of small manufacturers. Um, we have uh, three universities and a community college. Uh, so there's there's a lot of you know government services um, in the area. Um, the uh, its history is rooted in citrus. It was um, it was known as the place where the best naval oranges came from because of the, the soil and the climate and um, all the intersections of the elements of what makes a, what makes a great orange. Uh, and there's still orange groves there. Um, and the city is very nostalgic and proud of that heritage, uh, the city of Riverside. Um, Moreno Valley used to be mostly agricultural, and, and during the 80s, there was a big uh, building boom. Um, if there's, you know, it, it's, it's, a very, it's, it's very residential. It, it, it is the source of a lot of affordable housing. For a while, Riverside, in the, in the, during the aughts, the, um, the 2000, early 2000s, it was attracting a lot of millennials uh, because of that affordable housing. And uh, it was one of the fastest, one of the top five cities for attracting millennials. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a youthful district. Um, I've got a University of California there, University of California, Riverside. Um, it was originally founded as a citrus research station. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. What about, uh, um, can I ask you a follow-up question on the, on the citrus uh, uh-huh. side of things and, and the agricultural? How affected has Riverside been by the, obviously this winter, <laughs> this winter is really different. We're having like <clears throat> some uh, real uh, weird climate changey weather right now. <laughs> but um, how affected has Riverside been in the last couple of years by the drought that we've been experiencing in California? Well, we've we've had to, you know, uh, there's strong concern by the water districts. I have, uh, you know, two water districts that run through my district that are responsible for sourcing the water. There's a, I think, a, maybe one or two uh, private um, water companies, but by and large, the water is supplied by Western Municipal Water District and Eastern Municipal Water District, and um, they were in, they come to my office yearly, sometimes twice yearly, uh, they were discussing, you know, um, they're very, very interested in making sure that uh, Governor Brown's intention to uh, stabilize uh, the water supply and um, and there was a controversy over these two tunnels that uh, he wanted to build and Governor Newsom is uh, wanting to reduce it to one tunnel. Um, so there's, there's concern here in Southern California in general, where two thirds of the population lives that, uh, you know, are we going to have a stable water supply? So the drought was very concerning, um, yeah. to all of us. Um, it's just, it's, well, it's concerning to all of us. We're no different than other Southern California Absolutely. people. Yeah. I'm bringing it up because I'm thinking about <clears throat> like the types of, um, <clears throat> issues you may have been dealing with in the last couple of years. That was mm-hmm. one that came to mind as oh, I bet this is something that's passed through his office. But also, you know, just as like a general scope, what are some of the other things that you've been really focusing on or hearing a lot about from constituents? Well, um, right this moment, the 
my constituents are very, very affected by uh, President Trump's rhetoric about immigrants, uh, how he treats minorities, how he talks about women, um, how he talks about LGBTQ people. Um, uh, I think um, anybody who thinks of themselves as a vulnerable minority is, I think, very concerned about uh, the climate that this president has created through his rhetoric, through his policies. Uh, and um, I've got, um, in the city of Paris and Marina Valley, um, a lot of, actually all, all my district, there's um, you know, a large uh, Latino immigrant population. Um, it's a very diverse district, but you know, Latinos are, are, are predominantly um, you know, the, the largest minority. And um, I was just at a town hall last night uh, in the city of Paris, and one of the teachers, who's not a Latino, uh, you know, was nearly in tears. And she said, you know, um, the families that my students come from, they work so hard. And she said, I've just noticed a change in that uh, uh, the parents are very scared to come with their kids because uh, to bring their kids to school. Uh, we don't see the parents hanging around anymore because they're, they're concerned that um, they're going to be picked up by ICE. And that sort of thing has happened. Uh, and uh, so... Uh, that sort of fear, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, I get emotional thinking about my constituents who are affected by, uh, these policies. And so I talked, I opened my presentation, uh, the town hall. I was mostly question and answer, but I opened up with, you know, um, you know, the government shutdown. I talked about the government shutdown and, you know, it's connection to president Trump's, uh, determination to have his wall that he promised in his campaign and that the Congress didn't accommodate him and he was mad and so he shut down the government and, you know, uh, that I'm going to vote next week on a resolution of disapproval in his national emergency. Uh, and, you know, uh, you know, I started off by talking about that. And uh, so the other thing is, you know, my... My district, uh, actually Riverside County, which has three congressional districts, has the eighth largest population of veterans in the country. And so um, when I first got to Congress uh, in 2013, actually I was elected in 2012, but we take office in 2013, uh, you know, we all, we all vie to see which committees we can get. And we members usually choose committees that relate to their interests and their and the needs of their district. Uh, I chose the Veterans Committee. Uh, and um, by dint of a lot of different factors, I'm now the chairman of that committee. Wow. <laughs> well, I have so many follow-up questions on, on all of this. Okay, I'll try really to stop. Let me stop so you can, like— Yeah, I want to so ask a couple things. This here. is an interview, not a monologue. So. No, I, I, I have, like—just everything you've said is— uh, <laughs> is making my mind go in a bunch of different places. Um, you know, of, of course, yeah, I, I live here in LA. Of course, I see that folks in my community are talking about um, the need to work to make folks who have immigrated here feel safe because those are our, our neighbors. Like, that, that's, yeah. those are our neighbors. But I also know a little bit about, in the reading I did about your specific background, um, 
and I don't want to like make a direct connection, but I can imagine <laughs> you're extremely passionate about this issue because I know that there, that your grandparents um, are. Correct me if I'm wrong. They were you're from. They were from California here. Well, out of my four grandparents, they're all passed. They're all they have all passed away by now. But uh, one of them was an immigrant. Three of them were born in this country, and uh, my father's. Uh, father was the immigrant, and he 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 uh, arrived in America in in the port of Tacoma, Washington, and my mother's parents. Uh, I'm not sure where they were born. Uh, they, they were born here. They were born. Uh, they were born. I don't know if they were born in California, but they uh, they were before the World War II were in the San Gabriel Valley. Uh, and they were leasing land and farming, um, but all but my parents, my mother and father, and all my grandparents, uh, they were in internment camps. They were removed from their homes. Uh, they could only take what they could carry. Uh, there's a very dramatic story about my uh, my paternal grandfather, who was the immigrant. Uh, you know, he came here in 1916. Uh, I'm not really clear what he did to get by, but he did what immigrants do, uh, scraped enough money together. Uh, it wasn't until 1937, 38 that he married my grandmother, who was 20 years younger. She was American-born. And many Americans are kind of surprised to know this, but um, uh, birthright citizenship was not stable for women, regardless of race, Prior to like 1922, 23. I, I didn't know that. I know. it's Also, we are the same. We're the same generation American. Well, all of my grandparents were born here, but like barely kind of a thing. And I'm, yeah. and I'm Italian. Okay. So um, it turns out that like uh, in case we in case we ever need and it seems like um, sometimes we do some further information about how uh, maybe different some people are treated differently. Um, my my grandparents, who were Italian, were not placed in internment camps during World War II, and your grandparents, who were Japanese, <laughs> well, you, were. So that's so a, it didn't happen to the entire population of Italian immigrants here. It did happen to some Italians, and actually, my I think I'm pretty sure some Italians and German German immigrants were picked up. I actually didn't that. know that. Yeah, yeah, some were, and they actually were interned. Uh, in a place called Tuna, Tuna Canyon, which is here in LA County, someplace there was a there was a detention center for, uh, and that's that's not a well known story. No, but, definitely. But the Japanese immigrants and their children, um, this was what was pretty nefarious about this whole episode in our history was that it wasn't based on anything that they had done. It was based on the color of their skin, Certainly. based on the shape of their eyes. And they were wholesale ordered to relocate from these exclusion zones on the West Coast into these internment camps. There were no trials. There were no convictions. And believe it or not, even uh, the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, who has his own sort of LGBTQ sort of like sure, whatever. Sure, sure. But I, I, was, I was ready to demonize him when I had to go give a speech on the day that FBI director... Comey was actually going to resi- was fired. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, after I finished the speech, I finally was fired. But I looked up on my iPhone uh, and Wikipedia, and it turns out J. Edgar Hoover actually advised against 
interning Japanese Americans. He didn't think it was warranted. The Attorney General Francis Biddle didn't think it was warranted. And here's how here's how your question sort of relates to what we're experiencing now. Um, there was a Lieutenant General DeWitt uh, who falsified information or actually just lied. Um, and the government lied uh, about um, the danger that Japanese immigrants and Japanese Americans posed. Uh, and that was what was provided to the Supreme Court in these, in these uh, you know, important cases like Korematsu or Hirabayashi, um, the, the men that challenged uh, the internment order. Um, so on the pretext of a national emergency under national security, uh, the court, the Supreme Court deferred to you know, the political branches, the president, um, there was a failure of political leadership in in the Congress. Nobody really stood up uh, for any kind of constitutional principles uh, to protect the equal rights of citizens. In this case, Japanese American citizens. But the you know the government basically you know uh, was lied, and um, uh, you know one hundred twenty thousand. Immigrants and Japanese Americans were were imprisoned unjustly. It, it that echoes in what I see happening at the border. The president is wrongly saying, uh, falsely saying that uh, uh, women and children that are fleeing violence and uh, in Northern Triangle countries of uh, Central America um, pose a threat to our country. Right, and. That's just wrong. He's uh, characterizing all immigrants, uh, especially from you know Latin America, um, as being you know um, you know uh, drug smugglers um, or rapists or and you know when right, when all this linked to violent crime like the, the everybody is a, a gang member that's coming yeah, over MS, that, MS-13 but that, but that also <laughs> there are a gang member that's coming over but that's also going to be gainfully employed in the job that you just had like that that it's that's uh it, even the sentence doesn't make sense that they yeah, it's where everything is it's all it's all things at once it's it's MS you know MS-13 all right. of, you know it's like MS-13. everyone's MS-13 but they're all going to take the jobs at the well, factory in your town <laughs> when when in fact when in fact the crime our own his own crime statistics uh tell us that by and large, immigrants are less likely uh, to commit crimes. My experience of immigrants is that they're so trying to be careful not to have any trouble with the law. Um, that's why they're they're far less likely to try and attract any law enforcement attention. So they're 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 even more, I think, trying to walk, you know, uh, that line. And um, and it's such an unfair thing. So, so look. A wartime hysteria in 1941. Uh, the you know just the hyperventilating of the press. They call it you know the, you know the Hearst newspaper chains uh, created an atmosphere of just hysteria, and um, you know politicians uh, uh, you know created you know through their through their failure to stand up uh, and look at facts. Brought us to this, brought brought us, brought our country to that point. You know, there was one governor of Colorado, Ralph Carr, uh, who said this was wrong, and he lost his election. Wow! So I, I like to point out that there were people who did that. 
Um, there were there were private universities, like religious universities, uh, that looked to relocate students um, to other universities in the Midwest. So, so there was a little bit of that resistance going on. So, you know, those to me were the real heroes of the Republic, you know, at the time, uh, to stand, you know, to sort of stand up to all this. So, yeah. I'd love to ask you also, I mean, maybe this is, maybe this isn't, something that that comes into your mind. I don't know. But having that history in your family and then um, going into government, does it ever feel weird to you to work for the same government that did that? Or do you feel like, well, my presence here is is to stand in the way of that happening in the future? Or, or like not that, well, but, you know, the It never felt thing. weird to me. It never felt weird to me. Uh, it's something that I thought I wanted to, that I wanted to do ever since I was a little kid, believe it or not. It's, uh, I had a great fourth grade teacher. Actually, it was a fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Theologis, who was rather, I wouldn't want to say the word stern, but she was like, I mean, she taught me everything I know about grammar. Now she really like, <laughs> sure. and well, she didn't beat it into me, but I, for whatever reason, she just gave me, you know, English grammar, you know, and um, she assigned me a a book report to do on Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who ironically was the guy that signed the executive order. I, I, I think that was Roosevelt. That was Roosevelt's. It's the biggest stain on Roosevelt's record as a president. But I still admire him for the New Deal, uh, the things he did to uh, his the leadership that he exhibited. Otherwise, um, but there were, you know, he he was far from perfect, and he 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 made a huge mistake on on the internment of Japanese Americans. But um, that got me started. And then I had another teacher in sixth grade, um, Mr. Stevens, uh, who was, he kind of had this beard and he, he was like, this is like 1968, 70, around there. And he was, um, uh, he, he was very against the Vietnam War. And he was, he was one of those teachers that, you know, was very passionate and, um, but I was a smart kid, and he he liked talking to me about this stuff, and and uh, and that and after sixth grade, uh, I was a strange kid. I, I sat in my grandfather's living room on his black and white, looking at his black and white television, uh, looking at the public television stations, gavel to gavel proceedings of uh, the impeachment hearings with Peter Rodino, and I was struck by this. Uh, by the opening five-minute speech of Barbara Jordan from from Texas, oh, who, we, sure. who, who we later we, we later find out that she was you know a lesbian, but uh, 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 but we didn't know at the time. And I, there might have been some vibe going on that I wasn't aware right. of. <laughs> yeah, know? she's got a specific like that specific voice and everything. Oh, yeah. That's what it was, and it's yeah. like I kind of wanted. I was kind of imitated her for a while, and I was like kind of you know. Yeah. You know the Constitution. Yeah, you know, she's, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I believe in. Look I, up, listen to Barbara Dorn. Anyway, yes. Please. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for a very warm reception. It was 144 years ago that members of the Democratic Party first met in convention. To select a presidential candidate. Very you know, I, have, I have a faith in the Constitution, and uh, um, but you know what? Uh, what struck me about her story was that she said, it, "It's it's amazing that I'm here, right? That right? That uh, my forebear, you know, she talked about 
the, the legislative slavery and how the Constitution through amendment and changes, and, and it all led to her being there as an inquisitor. And I just loved the whole thing and watching the, the whole process unfold and all the other, I, I, I remember the names of some, I, I served with a guy named Sarbanes, whose father was a member of that committee, you know. Um, so um, the irony was that I was watching all of this uh, with my grandfather who was smoking his pipe. He was a gardener uh, who I don't know if he understood much of it and he didn't understand. He could, he could understand that all the votes seemed to be kind of cooked that, you know, he, like why you're, why you're so interested in this, whatever. Um, so I, I long had an interest in, in this sort of thing uh, in, in, in government and politics. And I, uh, let me try and speed this up a little bit. Um, uh, so I, I made a plan to go to an Ivy League school. Where'd you go? I went to Harvard. I've heard of it. Yeah, have you? <laughs> yeah. Have you? Okay. Went to Harvard. I went to Harvard. For, your, for undergrad? Undergrad. And um, my plan was to go to law school and, uh, you know, make connections. And, you know, it's just, you sure. know it's how you did I, I As a teenager, I studied all these things, and this is how you do it. And um, But Harvard was, you know, exhausting. And um, Actually, by, Sierra went to Harvard. Hey, Sierra. She? Hi, Sierra. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Sierra. Did you like it? <laughs> Did you find it exhausting? It was exhausting. Yeah, it's intense because everybody there is pretty intense. And um, so this is the early 80s that I graduated. I graduated in 83. And a lot of my classmates uh, had it better figured out than I did. They were like on Wall Street. This is like the time of like Alex P. Keaton and family ties and people going off the Wall Street and like after finishing college and making just – you know, big a, money. A, a little bit of money. Yeah. A, yeah. Just so like a few and I was billion like, dollars. And I was like feeling, where, you know, where, I mean, because my, my orientation was always to go into like politics. And the AIDS crisis starts to happen. And the the mood of the country just gets really more uncomfortable. And I have a lot of self-doubt about whether the calling that I was answering with my life was really the calling that I ought to keep answering at that. Well, could I succeed in politics as a gay person? Yeah. I want to ask you the uh, question on that. So did you, did you, when did you, when did you know that you were a gay person? I kind of knew when I was actually a little boy. I mm-hmm. mean, I kind of noticed it, but maybe that's a lot of the grown up me sort of looking at what it was like to be five or six years sure. old. Um, I definitely, Noticed more and more as I was in like fifth and sixth grade, um, as I was you know going through my physical changes, body you know through puberty, um, I just thought that the intense attractions I felt toward you know uh, males was something that was going to pass. I just thought, oh, I was I would be I would get real I would you know comfort myself with the thought. That. Sure, I can um, relate to that. I mean, I, I, I also, I actually thought I was like everybody that I know feels this way. Like all of my friends, like kind of want their boyfriends to go home, but would really prefer their best friends. Yeah, <laughs> like that's how I felt. So, um, but then if when you were in college, were you? Well, number one, were you dating anybody? I started to see. I started to see people. Mm-hmm. Um, I never seemed to date 
people for an extended long extended period of time. In fact, uh, I uh, I grew disenchanted with uh, the gay dating scene by the time I was finishing college or around age 24, 25. It was sort of convenient because it also was at the, by 1985, the, the AIDS crisis was coming to a boil. I wouldn't say that the AIDS crisis made me stop dating. I was also just sort of disenchanted with um, the possibility of having a relationship at that time in my life. Um, and as I look back on it, I think I think to try and have a relationship as a gay person or a lesbian, it was difficult just period. I'm amazed at people like Eddie Win- e. Windsor who found uh, that significant other, that person in her life, uh, and that she got married. And I mean, her story is like, oh, <laughs> you know, I actually got to meet her and I was like, I'm like, Edie, yeah. you know, she was like a, she was a coder, a programmer. And she was like one of the, the first employees of IBM, right. the early IBM stuff. And it's like, to think about that she was brave enough in New York City to go to a place where she could meet you know, other women, I found that to be astounding. And she was really kind of a determined activist, you know. It's So to, to have that sense of self about who she was, I was more by 25 feeling doubt about myself. And I thought, well, maybe I'm not really gay and maybe, yeah. you know, I, I and I, I, this was not, I, I had other friends who were going through that, the same thing. And, um, and I think the the AIDS crisis kind of even reinforced that mood, you know? You know, that that's something that for all the guests that I've had on Query, I don't think anybody's said that yet. And I don't know that I've heard that anywhere else. The idea that, because I think a lot about just the, you know, going to a bar or like, or meeting up with someone or m- hooking up with somebody, like that those things would be brave. <clears throat> but you're really right that... You know, having like a full-on relationship with somebody because then then that person is you're sharing things with them, and it that's like so many more options to sort of get get caught or to have to explain things to people around you. Like that is a really like continually brave thing to yeah. have to do well, at so that like, time. Yeah. At this point in my life, I'm sort of in and out. I kind of right. Harvard's kind of a, an easy place to sort of be out and whatever, but still the. Um, you know, a senior a senior administrator who met with the gay straight or the not wasn't gay straight it was the LGBT. I forget what we called it. it was the group of gays that, and I was so scared to go to that meeting at, at Harvard at first. That with a um, <laughs> actually the president was a guy named Ben Schatz, uh, who is like the the ringleader for this this drag acapella group called the Kinsey Six. Have you heard of the Kinsey Six? No, but I that sounds you gotta, great. You gotta check it out. <laughs> okay, well check it out. <laughs> to check out the Kinsey yeah. Six. So you know he, he was a a dropout Harvard lawyer who decided he wanted to dress in drag and like Sounds great. <laughs> actually sing and not lip sync, right? Yeah. So um and I still remember the uh, the decisions that we were making early on is like, well we're gonna be you know, we're gonna be strategic. Like there was this point about being strategic with your life, meaning to not be so out because you couldn't risk your career. Um, and the administrator sort of advising everybody there, like, you know, well, that's kind of a realistic, you know, point of view. Right. And 
think about the consequences of what you're doing. And you know, so that's kind of the mood in the early eighties. Right. Um, and so that's why I'm so impressed with people like, like Edie Windsor, who was just like from at a, a time in the fifties where she's yeah, like, she's a rock star hero. Like for right? sure. I mean, really like truly. But, but also when I think about somebody like you, there's also this, the specificity of a lot of people are going to go into careers where um, like, maybe you don't meet the person's, partner or spouse like especially at the time and if especially if it's their men because well, it's like i'm like working so hard and you know but if you're a politician your well, family's a part of it a little bit so if i look back at the i want to give you this sense of how i look at the challenges i went through in the 80s so there's always this thing in my mind that i'm i'm going to go into public life I go through a period of doubt in the 80s about whether in fact i i, I think i get depressed and there's a point at which i just you know, just kind of bumming around the house, eating a lot of pizza. And <laughs> my brother, my, my, Relatable. My brother's like, what's the matter with you? The whole family's worried about you. Like, you need to move on with your life. Da, da, da. It's like, you know, I, I, I actually worked with, do you know David Mixner at all? Have you heard of David Mixner? No, who is this person? So David Mixner, you should just Google him. Okay, like, great. We'll do. Google, I mean, Okay. And you should actually have him on your show at some Great. point. Because he's perfect. He was like Mr. He, he was a big organizer of like the Vietnam War student protests. He was like, but then, you know, he sort of comes out to himself and comes out out of that sort of 60s experience. And David Mixner here in LA was trying to organize this great peace march uh, of like 5,000 people in this movable city to like protest Ronald Reagan's like escalation of arms building. And, um, so I that was my first one of my first jobs out of school was to work for him and that that program it was it was very quixotic and it didn't really match the moods of the eighties. David was more kind of a mindset of the late sixties and it, it it that sort of organizing and building of events just wasn't catching on in the eighties. So the whole thing kind of flopped and uh, that that sort of added to my you know. Um, I, you know, I didn't get a paycheck. Uh, and so <laughs> this is kind of the things that 20 year olds do, you know? And, uh, so I said, I, I need to settle down and figure out, I mean, I'm not going to go to law school. I want to be a teacher, but do I really want to be a teacher? Cause it's not enough money. And, uh, all my friends are like, I'm Walter making lots of money. And, uh, is that the really right thing to do? And so I'm caught up between, you know, the image um, that a Harvard graduate ought to be. Uh, I mean, what's a Harvard graduate doing teaching in school? Is that that doesn't seem right? And so I have to work through all this nonsense in my head. And so um, I finally committed myself to becoming a teacher. I decided that living in LA was going to be too expensive, so I moved back in with my parents in Riverside. And of course, Riverside's not necessarily the most easy place to meet. You know, other sure. people. It's like it's. Uh, so just by a certain twist of fate, I'm, I'm in situations where meeting people is not so easy, but you know what? It also, it also forced me to kind of focus on other things. Like maybe focusing on a, on, on a relationship was not necessarily, uh, you know, my maturity at the time, I, I don't know that I would have, um, that was a, a smart use of time. Back for another game. You know it. 
What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! I'm going to jump up a little. I'm going to jump around. jump up. Jump around. Uh, what's in my brain right now is, is, uh, is the moment that I saw this movie, Brokeback Mountain, which... Div- I saw that movie in the theaters. Which divided gay men in a big way. Like people, Some people, some gay men were like, oh my God, this movie... And they, they watched it more than once and they're like, couldn't stop talking about it. And others were like, I don't get it. <laughs> like, like, you know, there's a whole group of like, Especially younger, the younger guys is some of the things. Too get slow. It. Too slow. Deliberate, sad ending. What about you? What did you? What did you think? I, I was one of those guys. I didn't watch it like, I think I only watched it once, uh, but it really hit me hard. Oh, it's I, beautiful. Yeah. I started to cry um, when I would hear. I would play the soundtrack in my car driving to work at teaching, and what I what I realized from that, uh, what the movie kind of taught me about these two guys in Wyoming in the early 60s and that the tragedy of them, of the relationship not working, they couldn't manage this attraction that they had to each other was that um, all of my inability to connect uh, wasn't completely my own fault, right? That um, some of it was my fault, <laughs> but, but, but there's other things going on that make it very difficult, and that these guys were doing the best they could with what they knew. And that's part of the tragedy, so you were pulling for them, but you knew it, you knew it at, at, a, at a bigger level, they just, they were relatively simple guys, they didn't have the benefit of a, of a vocabulary and, uh, and self-knowledge to be able to uh, make this work, right? right. So anyway, um, that's, the, that's what I was trying to say about uh, the struggle of being a young person uh, I suppose there's still it's still hard, right, for people, especially in parts of our country, right? I think it's I think it's still hard for lots of folks, and I also think that <clears throat> some of what you're talking about the, I mean, you can go to you can go to, like you said, it wasn't so hard to be out at Harvard, but then at the end of that story is like, but it was also fun, but also I was when when I said I would probably be <laughs> careful about when I was out. People were like, good idea. So I just mean like, there's all, there's all sorts of ways which as queer people, we are like taught to kind of uh, round out our edges and stay within certain parameters. And I think that that's really still true for a lot of folks. Even if you're like, you, you come out and you're 13 or whatever age people are now, it still doesn't mean that, that, you know, kids that you go to school with are fine with you wearing whatever clothes feel good on you. And that's a, that's amazing to me now is to see what what trans kids are doing or intersex kids are doing mm-hmm. and uh, just how how that their existence is that they're not we're not they're not being erased or 
uh, or they're, they're, they're asserting themselves in school environments. And that I see as a huge issue across the country is that there's, there's a greater awareness of trans people and trans youth uh, and trans youth, and actually, LG, you know, the whole LGBT, I mean, right. uh, that gay kid or that lesbian uh, girl uh, in some, you know, less urban part of the country where there's not as many, there's not really LGBT services, LGBT, you know, uh, that that they're aware of who they are, and they're showing up in classrooms with teachers who may not know or understand how to um, you know, uh, include them into right. into a classroom, and so principals and teachers and uh, you know communities. Uh, so what's 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 what is what is I think brought that on is this, this amazing change of of same sex marriage and uh, how in all fifty states in our territories that that's the law and and reality and um, but for our young people. Um, there's still a lot of institutional catch-up to do, right? Sure. I also, you know, I'm curious, I wonder, because I'm not like a young person going to school with someone else, I, but I would, I would hope that some of the feelings that are actually happening on the ground are, you know, that the other kids who maybe don't fit perfectly into whatever is cool or whatever is expected have, like, some flexibility by being around kids who are, like you said, asserting themselves more. Like, I love thinking about that. Like, because I think we, we talk so much about, like, like focusing on bathrooms. And um, I love thinking about the kids who, like, are going to have a trans, a trans person in their class. And so, like, they don't have to wear the outfit that they hate. You know, like, I just think about how strict everything was and tight and, like, exhausting in my youth and I just I would hope for kids the opportunity to just be freed from some of that like we don't need to be so yeah this domineering that uh, that well let me just say that I, I've met recently with parents of trans kids um, at, at in a congressional office building uh, Joe Kennedy uh, Congressman Joe Kennedy of Massachusetts uh, leads that trans task force, uh, which is a task force of the uh, of the um, LGBT Equality Caucus, which I'm a co-chair of. And um, he had invited in a number of trans parents through the Human Rights Campaign. And um, it was very touching to see how much the trans parent, the parents of trans kids just so love their kids and they're so... Uh, they they shared their struggles and their stories about uh, um, you know schools that you know weren't as accommodating and uh, or that there there may be you know uh, they may be parents that are have jobs in the military and are in the military and that sometimes the the the, uh, the, the Department of Defense schools uh, could be good and sometimes uh, having to move around they, they sure. if they fear that uh, they're going to be in another place and so this this trans military ban has had a I'm so glad you tra- that I was literally going I was going to pull these things together based on your experience working with veterans and your experience in the yeah. LGBT caucus I was like oh those things are kind of in- both interesting things to have in you know for in one person's uh call sheet or whatever you know yeah. that, that be, you know because there is well, a huge overlap Well there is and um so this this trans military ban is is has had a profound effect on 
you know, in ways that people won't think. I mean, what if you're what if you're a service member and you have like a trans child, and right. how's that going to affect uh, your um, your military service? So, um, you know, it's it's it. Uh, I think there's a great need for us uh, as a country and as Americans uh, to understand trans people as human beings. Um, I was just uh, at the Thrive Conference um, this, I think, last weekend. Uh, the HRC puts a puts a, a, a conference together of educators, social workers, uh, and the final day of the conference, they had a, um, a lot of uh, LGBT youth there. And I met an intersex teenager, uh, and uh, uh, I, I was really impressed with uh, the level of self-possession uh, that these young people had. But one of the things I said there is I said, um, first of all, I, I, I legitimized the word gay and I said, I'm the first openly gay person of color to serve in Congress. And that's kind of too long, so we can compress it down to like, I'm the first gay to be in Congress, right? <laughs> <laughs> so like, I'm so happy that you are the first gay to be in Congress. Yeah, so. but... Openly gay person of color, like that's a huge. That's huge. That's it is. Hu- it's, it's huge. It's a, it is huge. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not the only one. What's even huger is that we have, um, you know, a lesbian Native American. I know. Right. She's- so she's. We have a caucus of two now. Right? <laughs> that's so it's so like, rad. So it's like that's awesome. <laughs> and she's from Kansas. I know. Like I got elected from Riverside, but she went up to me and she got elected from Kansas. Like so, that's it's like really great. I'm like, yeah. you're. We're, I shouldn't say. I, I, I'm I'll to, say it. You're a badass. Is that what you were going to say? I don't know, but that's you read how my I mind. Yeah. You're right. You read my mind. I, I'm very mindful because yeah. you know Speaker Pelosi is like she never cusses. No, no saying the word badass. So I'll well, say just, it for you. Yes. She, I, I try to. I, I, she's she teaches me good things. So anyway, um, uh, I forgot where I was going. Well, with I want I want to start with I want to go back just a second to the to you talking about the trans military ban and yeah and um. And then, like, the work that you do with veterans, because I do think, um, you know, I don't think it's any mystery to probably us or anybody listening that that one w- very odd way about the way that the band seems to be positioned, like, when it's <clears throat> being spoken about. It's almost, it's like as if... Um, as if it's getting ahead of an issue. Like, we'll ban trans people from serving in the military in the future. Seems to be what, the way it's being positioned or sold to the American people. Mm-hmm. As if, like, trans folks haven't been serving in the military mm-hmm. the entire time. As if there aren't currently enlisted trans folks. And also, I mean, I, when I think about uh, gay folks who, or anybody that lived under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and mm-hmm. then now is a veteran in the U.S., and how... We like kind of have never squared. Um, like every Veterans Day, I always try to talk about that on my social media. Like the number of folks that served and maybe were dishonorably discharged, or like I don't even know if those people people can collect services. Like I don't know really if we so, squared that. As so, a country. so let me talk about my uh, what I call VA twenty thirty. As the chairman of the VA committee, I am tasking the committee with coming up with a plan for how, for, you know, establishing how is the VA going to meet the ever more diversifying veterans population. So more women are serving than ever, uh, more and more 
uh, racial minorities are supporting, are, are serving in the military than ever. And, you know, we overturned Don't Ask, Don't Tell uh, back in, what was it, 2010. So it's been close to eight years, eight, eight nine years that uh, uh, people know that they can serve in the military openly. And so obviously we're going to have, uh, you know, people who identify as LGBT, LGB, LGB as, at least, but, yeah. th- but people have served as, 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 as trans as well. So, um, uh, I, I want to position the VA, uh, to, pre- I want to prepare the VA. I want the VA to prepare itself for how are you going to serve these, the, the, an ever more diverse veteran population. Uh, don't assume it's going to be how it was. Also, as a look back on that look back issue, my, my colleague, Mark Pocan of Wisconsin, um, I, I assume he's going to reintroduce this bill. It's actually not a veterans bill, but it's a it's a it's a department. I think it's a Department of Defense bill, but it is it is a a look back at people who might have been discharged, not just dishonorably, but who might have been say forced to take a medical discharge to disguise the real reason why they were being um, discharged from the military, and to to do this to restore their ability to get benefits, to restore their ability to get a burial in a national cemetery, wow. uh, to honor their service. Because um, so there were, there's a whole pre-Don't Ask, Don't Tell group of military service members and veterans um, who I'm sure have a deep hurt uh, inside them for they, they serve their country, um, but because of who they are, um, and mainly for who they are, they're, they're, they were forced out of the military through a variety of different discharge procedures. And so uh, my colleague, Mark Pocan, uh, was, uh, he has legislation to try and rectify that. And, uh, and I, and I th- that's, that's, that's kind of an under the radar thing, but no, it's, thanks uh, for but, telling yeah. me about that. Yeah. That's, I mean, that, that matters to me a lot. And I also think it's very smart to, to think about the way in which the, the VA would need to pivot. I mean, of, of course that's true. Even just, even if it was just on the issue of it being more women. Like I, I think about well, I so, think about the way that, that like mothers would need to be supported, women who served and then decided to enter motherhood. And it's like that's <laughs> like that that is such a different well, type of support. You look, know? we just you know what we just passed to our first veterans bill that we passed uh was access to child care. Hey, look at me. I'm a genius. <laughs> <laughs> I'm anticipating the bills you passed. Well, it was yeah. our first. Yeah. We chose it our first bill. My colleague, it was uh, Julia Brownlee, who represents uh, Ventura County. And she used to uh, kind of, I think she has part of Santa Monica. I'm not sure. She introduced a bill um, and I managed it on the floor. Uh, and it has to, and it, what it does is it's uh, for women who are seeking, it, but actually it's not just women. It's it's either it's either gender uh, of, of service member or veteran. If they're going to a VA medical center or, or a VA facility and they're getting treatment, uh, especially mental health treatment or any intense medical treatment that, you know, um, uh, at certain VA sites, we already, we've had a pilot program where they can uh, get free childcare. Uh, so that's not an impediment to getting your PTSD treated, right? right. That you can seems go see the, so Right? So helpful. So yeah. there's no, you don't have to choose between caring for your kid and your mental health. Um, highly, highly popular bill that passed the House of Representatives by 400 votes. I, I expect it to pass uh, the Senate and um, be signed into law. Um, but that's an example 
of, uh, but you can see it applies, it applies, I think, more intensively to women. Um, by the way, uh, we've established, the, this year we've established uh, at the Veterans Affairs Committee under my leadership, a woman, a woman's veterans task force. Uh, we have the first woman veterans serving on the committee, um, you know, Elaine Luria of Virginia. Wow. Amazing. I mean, she's a captain of like a surface aircraft carrier with a nuclear, with a nuclear, she's a nuclear scientist of some kind. Impressive, um, impressive career in the military and the Navy. Um, uh, so, you know, Julia Brownlee is going to, is tasked with identifying the barriers uh, for women veterans in terms of their access to healthcare, accessing their educational benefits. Um, what one woman veteran has told me in a recent interview is that a lot of women might have had some bad experiences uh, in the military, um, just the way uh, people are socialized, that they, that they, when they leave, some of them, it's not so much something that they often celebrate or even want to identify with. And so we're trying to understand why women um, are not, um, you know, uh, seeking their benefit, using their right. benefits at the same rate men are. Oh, wow. I mean, that, um, you know, that's not, that's not, I'm not to like take this in a completely much more serious direction, but I think I think that everything that you're saying there makes sense when we talk about like the statistics that we know about like folks who are assaulted while they serve and, and things like that. You know, then we think about well, like, well why wouldn't somebody want to go I into think, a center? And you're like, there's probably a million reasons. I think uh, well, look, look, some of them are. Things I, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to like. Pa- no, you're. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> I I should have said that. Um, I believe the number is thirty percent screen. Thirty percent of women screen positive for uh, military sexual assault or trauma. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really yeah, It's a high huge, number. Huge it's a high number. number. Um, and that may even be low, right? right. That may be low. Um, you know, I have, a, I have um, uh, two women who live near my district who formed a group called Veteran Sisters, um, which is all about a network of women who suffered military sexual trauma. Uh, and... You know, one barrier that we know is that, you know, even a congressional office, if they don't have a veteran, a male, a female veteran that they can talk to, they may not want to talk to the male veteran about how, how can you navigate the barriers to getting your benefits? Because, you know, a congressional office, their job, the job of a congressional office is to advocate for you. Well, if we don't have an advocate on staff, you know, that they feel comfortable talking to, or we can't refer them to a female, uh, you know, uh, advocate, uh, that's a problem. So, um, and if we don't have a separate entrance for women to go to the VA hospital or VA medical center, um, uh, that's also an impediment. And so some of our medical centers do have a separate entrance so that they're not having to necessarily, you know, walk in front of. Wow. What an interesting series of, um, issues to navigate and, and try to deal with. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you've had like response and care and thought on everything that I've been Oh, we, so no, we're only we're, we're this new Congress. This is a change in this new Congress, right. right? And so we're we're staffing. We're giving special staff to this task force that's being led by Congresswoman Congresswoman Brownlee. Um, she's you know she's an impressive um, advocate for women veterans, and uh, um, I am, and we've hired just some you know impressive staff. This woman to to be the staffer. 
and I'm, I'm excited about what this committee is going to, going to uncover and what it's going to do to help women veterans uh, to, to Im- improve the way in which we reach out to women veterans and the way we serve them. So um, it's all part of VA 2030. You yeah. know, how do we, how do we really, uh, you know, the military is going to reflect more and more um, America, uh, who, who all, and that includes women, LGBT people, people of color. Um, you know, one of my strong connections to the military, I never served, but um, I've had, I had a brother who served. I had an uncle who served in Vietnam, and I remember him coming back and committing suicide. Um, uh, but I had three great uncles who served in, in World War II in the segregated all-Japanese-American fighting unit, the 442nd Infantry Battalion. You know, World War II and before, it was, you know, that was that's how they did things. They had segregated fighting units by race. And, you know, he had the Boricuaneers, the uh, you know, a Puerto Rican, you know, battalion, um, the Tuskegee Airmen, mm-hmm. uh, the, Nav- the Navajo Co-Talkers. Uh, you know, I, I, and under my chairmanship, I hope to highlight and bring to the fore the contributions of of um, of all Americans, our women veterans. You know, there's a proud history of women veterans. Um, so, you know, look, my three my three great uncles that served. It, one of them actually never came back. He 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 died at age 23, um, even as his family was interned in internment camps. And um, he was serving even as his family was interned. That's right. That's right. So yeah. That sounds that sounds very to me that sounds very American actually. I think there's a Doesn't there are there are a lot of people I think still living that life today. Yeah. Like well, here's the thing. Um there's been a backlash against I think the progress that was made under the Obama administration. I mean, mm-hmm. electing the first African American president, the way in which he was beginning to push in a forward way uh trans rights and this very deliberate you know, reversal uh, and the targeting of trans people, uh, you know, the the trans ban in the military, um, the revision of the the guidelines under the Department of Education um, uh, for trans students. Um, this is all very deliberate. And so, what people, um, I guess, I guess the experience of, I mean, that that whole image of of a twenty three year old Japanese American fighting for his country, dying on the battlefield, even as his family is unjustly interned in an internment camp, why that's such an important thing, important part of history to remember is, as you say, people suffer the humiliation today of loving their country, of wanting to fight for the country, wanting to serve for their, their, serve their country, and um, still be insulted uh, for who they are right. uh, by a president who, with a broad sweep of his rhetoric says that, you know, a Mexican-American judge can't treat him fairly in a court because he's Mexican. Right. Or he's Mexican-American. Mm-hmm. This, this is, um, and so look, to your young listeners, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going yeah, no, to stop. I, I love to, it. To your young listeners, you're, we're not fighting World War II right now, but we're, we're fighting for our republic. We're fighting for the government of the people, for the people, and by the people, and making sure it doesn't perish from this earth, making sure that a demagogic um, person in the White House who has this demonic sort of hold um, on a certain segment of the population, 
um, and has told falsehoods that uh, that we don't let him, um, you know, cause this precious thing of our of our republic to to, to disappear. And yeah, it's, that, it's not his. It's not his. It's ours. And you get, <laughs> it's everyone's. It's everyone's. And you've got to, you have a role to play no less than my, my great uncle who, who made a bet. You know, that, you know that the motto of the 442nd was um, go for broke, which means you're going to bet it all. If you're going to go for broke in a poker game, you're, you're putting all your yeah. chips in. And he did that. And I, I, I challenge him. I say, look, if, if, you are a, if you are a dreamer and you're wondering whether or not you should you know, still get good grades and uh, you're, you're wondering about um, whether or not you have a future in this country, you know, just think about you know, people who came before you, like my granduncle or even my grandfather who spent his whole lifetime not really having ever a pathway to citizenship and his, and his grandson today as a congressman, right? I mean, so bringing it back to go for broke, my, my great uncle, Monso, his name was Mon, I call him Uncle Mon, he, he, he made a bet that our country uh, had a better, was a, that, this, that the America was a better bet than Nazi Germany. It was a better bet than imperialist Japan or fascist Italy. Uh, and, that our country was worth fighting for. And I, I submit to, you know, young people today, that's still the case. Um, it may not be a gun on a battlefield that you're carrying, but it's, it's, it's a mind that you've got to improve. It's, um, uh, it's your activism. It's your wokeness, you know, (laughs) it's your, it's your wokeness. That's going to save our country. Right. So. Well, I, I feel like, uh, that was a (laughs) great call to arms to, uh, Proverbial arms. And I also, I guess I just want to ask you before, I have two final questions. I'll send you back into your day. You know, to me, the way in which you've incorporated your personal story into everything we've talked about today, I think, I am happy that you are in Congress and that you are gay. I think we often- I'm glad, I'm glad you are. (laughs) I think we often talk about our, especially in like the last couple of years, we talk about um, the specifics of our experiences as being things- like identity politics is too much, and it's it's wrong when we bring our identity into things. Um, but I actually I, I actually think if if you know if we're not in the room, the decisions get made without our input. Yeah. So I just wonder if, like, do you see your your sexuality as a selling point for you being a representative or for you being a congressman? The same way that well, your specifics well, let me of just, your background. I mean, let me tell a story. I'll see if I can tell it fast enough. Yeah. Um, so my first time that I was elected to Congress, nineteen ninety two, I was not. I would, I was, I was, I, I wasn't, I, I mean, my family knew that I was, but I wasn't really out. I, I nearly won that election in 1992. Uh, I, 32 years old, I would have become a member of Congress. Uh, everybody encouraged me to run again in 1994. Uh, they, it was one of the top races in the country. It was like, you know, targeted as, you know, the top priority for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Mrs. Gore came out and campaigned for me, Al Gore's wife. Um, I would lose that election and be outed. Um, I mean, people, they, it was a legitimate tactic to out me. And there was even a, a mailer that said, you know, um, had a target on me and says, you know, it was pink and lavender colored mailer. And it said, oh, wow. it asked the question, is Mark Takano a member of, 
uh, is going to be a member of Congress from Riverside or from San Francisco. And he supports the radical, the radical agenda of the homosexual human rights campaign fund, right? They just, they were, so flash forward, fast forward, uh, you know, 18 years to 20, uh, to uh, 2012, 2012, I, I, I'm in a different time. And uh, so I lost that election in 1994 by, by 17 points. Uh, there were a lot of stories about, uh, so we were, we were oddly enough, so I, I didn't play it really straight, so to speak, in 1994. And when the press came to me and said, well, is it true what that state senator said about you? Are you, are you gay? And I said, well, this is just my opponent's way to distract from the fact that he was, you know, I won't go into the whole story, but he was, he was in a lurid situation. Um, so I didn't, I didn't really answer the question that I was gay. Um, but the funny thing in 2012 is that we were actually trying to get stories out there about that I was gay because we were trying to raise money from the community and right. trying to like excite people saying, oh, look, you know, the guy has a real shot, you know, a, a gay guy has really got a shot to get to Congress. And the stories that were being written was, well, what's the difference between then and today? And, you know, the difference was, well, you know, back then we were trying to like kind of maybe keep it undercover and today we're actually trying, we're frustrated that we're trying to get it out there uh, that, um, you know, that I'm gay. So, um, but let me say that, that the intersection of being a racial minority uh, with a history, a personal history of knowing what it's like to be vulnerable, having parents that were, that were in internment camps and knowing that the government lied and um, knowing that sort of injustice happens to people uh, and knowing what it's, like to be gay um, and just be treated unfairly because of who you are, it it certainly gives me, I think, more passion when I go to the floor to defend um, Syrian refugees that are being treated unfairly. And so, you know, even after the San Bernardino shootings happened in my community uh, and candidate president, you know, candidate Trump is like inflaming the situation and saying, I don't believe the mother and the family. They knew what was going on and like just, you know, stirring, you know, in the midst of that, um, still knowing that, that my own community sort of knows my story. Uh, they, they know my value and orientation and that ultimately I can rely on them to have my back when I stand up in Congress um, for the right things to be, you know, that Ralph Carr, the Governor Ralph Carr, who stood up for Japanese Americans. Never again do I want to see there to be a political, uh, a, a failure of political leadership that we have to learn from this history. Um, and um, so I, I know a lot, a lot of your listeners are learning some things for the very first time. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I mean. It's like, you got to go and learn this history and you got to arm yourself with this knowledge. And, um, uh, that's that's how we're going to fight to save our republic. And finally, let me say that um, I talked about at the Thrive Conference the importance of of reading novels and uh, and fiction. And I used to be an English teacher. You know, I, I was a teacher for twenty two years. And um, I told. You know, I told the audience, they started laughing. I said, you know, because novels help us to be less egotistical. They help us imagine the lives of others. And um, 
you can you understand the problem of egocentrism in political leaders. And oh, sure. I didn't, <laughs> didn't mention the name. Yeah, and people are like, they're possible knowing, to know. They're, they're knowing who I'm talking yeah. about. And I said, it begins, it starts to peak an inter, a, a, a peak, a curiosity in your fellow citizen. And you need to ask yourself the question, you have your own dreams and your fantasies, but can you start to understand the dreams and fantasies of other people? Uh, and, um, and I said, you know, you're curious. And like, I said, you're all coming to this conference because you want to understand. You came here because you were curious and you want to understand um, the struggles of trans kids. And that curiosity um, is what is going to save us as well, right? So, Absolutely. Anyway. I, I love everything that you just said there. Uh, before I send you back, this is the final question okay, that I ask everybody, okay. and it's just to shout out a queero, uh, which is a queer hero. It's, so it's a, oh, a queero. So it's like a person, or it could be a place, made you feel like you can be who you are today. Oh my! <laughs> that's a George. That's a. <laughs> that's a. Uh, it's a, that's a, a George Takai. A George Takay. Yeah, yeah. There it is. Oh my! Oh my! Yes. Um, well. I, you know, I'd say a queero for me would be like Barbara Jordan. Barbara Jordan's, a, yeah. Agree. Barbara Jordan's a good one, don't you think? I do. Yeah, I think uh, the Constitution. Yeah, I think everybody should go uh, <laughs> look up her her contributions to our country. Also, Congressman, I really appreciate you making time for us today. I think that there's a lot of a lot of things here that that we talked about that I I don't hear talked about enough. So I appreciate oh, your time. Well, you know what, I so much appreciate that you've created what you've done with uh, you know your comedy and and your performance and that you have this following and you know you're you're one of the people on the front lines man yeah we're all do- <laughs> we're, we're all doing everything we can truly right yeah, yeah. you are yeah you are. awesome All right, thank thanks. you so much thank you <laughs>